Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. My name is Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through the best of the journal from February 2020. Now this month's primary survey is written by Ellen Weber, our chief editor, and unfortunately I've been unable to get hold of Ellen because we were going to try and do this together. This is entirely my fault. Ellen's been available but I've not just not been able to get in touch so I'm really sorry for that. But I will try and do my very best to tell you what she's found interesting and exciting in the journal of this month. So let's kick off with trauma. Uh, We often do. And looking at the profile of major trauma and how it's changing. The very young and the very old are now as likely to be victims of trauma as the middle aged man in a road traffic injury or a youth victim of stabbing. And that's that's probably a change from what people perceive about what major trauma is. And in this month's issue, with a strong focus on trauma, we begin with a commentary, and it's actually this month's reader's choice, about how this new face of trauma is often concealed, so-called stealth trauma. The child, often brought in by car, not EMS, who bypasses the usual trauma system entirely, is increasingly common actually, and the elderly patient who arrives by ambulance after a fall from standing to the kitchen floor, no obvious bleeding, and less ability to notice or complain of pain, They may not be triaged to the trauma centre or even be assigned the highest acuity in ED, but yet they may be the ones who've got the multiple rib fractures, a haemothorax, pulmonary contusions, splenic haematoma, and you'll have seen lots of these patients if you're you're working in trauma centres, and they're really difficult to spot. And so we're now increasingly challenged to figure out how a trauma system which was set up to identify major trauma largely based on on mechanisms, actually, particularly high-energy mechanisms like falls from height or car accidents. And how can we meet the challenge of this new demographic and this new epidemiology of injury? Because it's not acceptable, really, to just say, well, that's not the kind of trauma I deal with if you're a trauma centre. Trauma centres should be dealing with a whole spectrum of stuff. But it's difficult to spot, particularly at the extremes of age. So, not by accident, a blunt chest trauma in the elderly is the subject of this month's expert practice review. And yeah, sure, while a 25-year-old who breaks a rib or two after a bicycle crash will likely have a fairly uneventful course, that'd be pretty sore, the 68-year-old who's taking anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation with underlying COPD and no help at home, well, they're not going to have an easy or even necessarily an assured recovery from what could in fact be a similar injury. So assessment, imaging, pain control and deciding where the patient should be admitted are all critical in these patients and are covered in this review. And um, as a side note, you might want to listen to our podcast on the Hector Project, a multidisciplinary team approach to elderly people with trauma, which actually won the 2018 BMJ Award for Emergency Medicine. Ooh, that's pretty cool. And the links for that are in the journal and on the website. I think the, the whole rib fracture thing is fascinating. I mean, I, when I trained, I was told pretty strictly that under no circumstances do you do a chest x-ray to look for rib fractures because the treatment is the same, which is nothing for everybody. And now I work in a trauma center and I see lots of elderly patients with, (laughs) oh my God, that is such bad advice. So chest injuries in these at-risk groups uh, are clearly potentially fatal injuries. We need to be very careful about them. Imaging, we're increasingly doing CTs now for this group of patients because the chest x-ray may be useful for things like pneumothorax and haemothorax, but even then you miss a lot of injuries with just plain imaging. So there's a lot in this practice review and I think it's an area where as a trauma system, these are definitely some of the groups of patients who should not have very adverse outcomes or die, but can if they're not managed or investigated well. So I would certainly have a look at that if you're seeing trauma patients. Similar vein, I suppose, uh, thinking about sort of major trauma and stuff, is the issue of massive transfusion protocols, um, which currently specify a fixed ratio of red cells, FFP and platelets. However, 
there is continuing uncertainty about what the optimum ratios for those are. So we've got a study from the Netherlands reviewed uh, the massive transfusion protocols from all 11 of its trauma centres in the Netherlands and finding that the ratios of red cells plasma platelets varied considerably. Now, hospital procedures for MTP, major transfusion protocols, often didn't follow either what they were supposed to be doing in the Dutch Ministry of Defence guidelines or the European or the ATLS guidelines. So it's really interesting. The article provides an excellent summary of what current guidelines actually say, which you can use to see if your hospital is practising accordingly. Um, but again, it's an interesting one. And I think in recent trials, it's still not entirely clear what the best ratios are, although I think a lot of people are going for one to one to one. In the concepts paper this month, we've got a really informative and very thought provoking read. And this is an article exploring the experience of piloting a program for uncontrolled organ donation in the ED of the Royal Edinburgh Hospital. So controlled organ donation involves the planned withdrawal of care in anticipation of circulatory arrest. Uncontrolled donation occurs in patient who has experienced unexpected and irrecoverable circulatory arrest. Now, uncontrolled donation has proven to be successful in increasing the number of available organs in places like Spain, Italy and France for transplant. And this paper takes you through the many steps of conception planning and ethical approval and the systems and personnel needed for such a programme. For those of you not aware, the UK is set to change its organ donation policy in 2020, April. And it's I think we need to get our head around this. And this is a useful article which will give you an idea about how we can handle this in the ED, which is not often a place where we've done organ donation like this in the past. Then the Editor's Choice paper this month is on pain. It's the most common reason that patients attend our emergency departments. And yet study after study tells us that our pain management is suboptimal. We've even heard things like pain is the fifth vital sign, we're told. We have posters in our EDs that encourage patients to ask for more pain medication. And in the USA, triage nurses are required to ask about and chart both the quality and degree of pain. And a pay-for-performance measure rewards, or penalises, hospitals based on the time it takes for patients with long bone fractures to receive pain medication. So why is it that we're not better at this? Well, interesting paper, Samson et al. performed hours of observation, interviews and analysis of documents at 3Ds in the north of England to try and understand where the problem is. And they found that pain management was not perceived to be a core organisational priority for which staff were held accountable. It's not prioritised in training and that the systems of care within the ED did not really prioritise pain management. So question for us i mean this is not your department it's not my department necessarily but it is one for us all to have a look at how our systems work and ask whether they are really designed to meet what is one of our patients number one needs now when i ever see anything about pain i am always reminded of a paper which we published in the emj many years ago with rick body about what patients actually need when they arrive in the ed we often think about pain but if you're going to have a look at this and i strongly recommend you do also have a look at other things. So ask the patients why they are suffering, which may be more than just pain, may include things like nausea and vomiting. So yes, absolutely look at this. Have a look at pain. Also have a look at the other things which you can do early on to alleviate suffering, which is more than pain, although pain is clearly very important. So then we go on to a, and finally, a report published in 2016 suggested that the delayed transfers of care, the detox, i.e. those inpatients that no longer need an acute care bed but remain in the hospital, are responsible for the boarding of admitted patients in England's EDs, resulting in a failure to meet the four-hour target. So basically the idea is if you can't get people out the back door, you can't get them in the front door. That 
kind of makes sense. And it would be easy to make the assumption, given that over the years detox have risen at approximately the same rate as breaches to the four-hour target, that this is the case. So is this cause and effect? Well, not so far, say the authors of the paper. The impact of delayed transfers of care in the emergency department's common-sense arguments, evidence and confounding. In this study, Keogh and Monk show how the analysis fails to account for the longitudinal nature of the data, and that in fact, there's only a very weak correlation between these two variables. Now, that's really interesting. So, the title, you can have a look at it, it's a little bit daunting to non-statisticians, um, but the paper's pretty easily digestible explanation of the principles involved. And I think this is important because we're all struggling with flow and capacity at the moment. And if we just go for what apparently is the cause or what we need to fix, but in fact it's not the cause, we'll waste a lot of time and energy doing something which won't make a difference. So, always, wouldn't it be great when we have evidence-based policy? Well, here's some evidence. Have a look at it, have a decision about it, and maybe put it in your policies. So, that was February. Again, apologies for being a little late with this one. It's uh, entirely my fault. But it's great to be back, and it's great to read both February and March's um, EMJs. I would recommend them both to you. There's a lot going on. It's going to be a busy few months. We're gearing up pretty heavily for COVID-19, which is going to challenge us all, perhaps, probably, maybe, possibly. Mm, I think so. So, We'll have more on that coming up soon. There is, on the EMJ blog, there's a section where you can put in your information and your experience of dealing with COVID-19. I encourage you to do that. So that's enough from me for now. Enjoy your emergency medicine, and we will speak soon. Bye. Bye.